Hello and welcome to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. I'm Michael, that's Josh, you can't see him because it's an audio uh, medium, but we have a very special guest with us today to speak about gynecological cancers. Dr. Vish Bulel. Vish is a medical oncologist currently working at Victoria's Northern Hospital. A proud Mauritian, he speaks at least three languages that I know of. He probably speaks more. He is a graduate of the University of Melbourne and completed his oncology advanced training in 2014, a journey that took him across metropolitan Melbourne and regional Victoria. He has held research fellowship roles at Monash Health, Ballarat Hospital, as well as the Hudson Institute. He worked for many years at Ballarat as a consultant oncologist, also providing outreach services to the rural community of Horsham. Finally, he moved to the Northern in 2021 with the brief to establish a gyne-onc service for Melbourne's rapidly growing northern suburbs. There, he met a wide-eyed, know-nothing oncology trainee who later would drag him kicking and screaming onto his podcast. Vish, it's a privilege to have you on the show. I hope I didn't sell... I don't, I hope I didn't undersell your oncological or linguistic abilities. Um, probably slightly. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> yeah, four, four and a half languages, actually. Four and a half. I knew I was underselling it. So, Vish, we do like to start these with uh, a little glimpse of you. You know, we can provide the uh, myriad intellectual uh, accomplishments, but we like to um, ask you a couple of questions of, of how you got to this spot. So you probably could have picked any specialty um, in medical school and after finishing your basic physician's training. What drew you to medical oncology? Um, yeah, good question. It's, um, I suppose the answer has been the same. I, um, when I was in medical school, I already sort of developed an interest to it, probably more the science part of it. Um, and I actually did my elective in medical school in oncology um, back in my home country. I have to say it was a terribly negative experience. It was very um, barbaric medicine, not very nice, not very kind, um, but didn't sort of deter me. And then when I started training, my first ever job actually was uh, oncology intern in Bendigo. Um, and that showed me a much better perspective of what oncology could be and kind of consolidated it. Um, I think there's two components to how I answer the question. The first one is the science part of it. I don't think there's many other disciplines in medicine where you can go from a molecule all the way to um, being able to get a drug that targets that molecule that you get a response. So um, I also feel that a lot of other areas of medicine have a lot of good treatments already. So you're really sort of just improving on very good management levels. And this is really an area of need. A lot of parts of oncology the outcomes still aren't that great. So there's so much work that still needs to be done. I also think on the opposite side of it, the human aspect of it, um, and it's one of the few areas where you actually get to sort of truly talk to someone as a person. And, you know, you've got the two speeds of oncology, which is you can cure someone, but the, a lot of times we can't. And, you know, and then the patient then comes a lot more at the forefront of, you know, what treatments do you offer, trying to maximize quality of life and talking openly about, you know, the end coming and what to do. Um, and so I think on a human aspect of it, it's actually more rewarding. Um, and that's been the, the sort of two main reasons I do it. Oncology definitely has a very holistic approach or has turned very much into holistic care of patients where we become the primary physician and the primary carers for a very long time for these individuals. And 
One of the questions I have, you know, there's a plethora of things you can go into in oncology, including becoming a clinician scientist, but why did you end up fellowing and sort of pursuing gynecological oncology as a subspecialty? Um, So I think a lot of what you end up doing comes down to the experiences you've had through your training. Um, So I had the benefit of, you know, being exposed to pretty much all the different types of solid organ cancers. for a huge chunk of my early consultant career, um, I actually worked regionally, so I didn't have the luxury of being able to subspecialize in tumor stream. Um, and so you sort of take on everything. You tend to find affinities to different malignancies based on what your experience has been with them. Um, and I think, you know, with specifically with gynecological oncology, there's just, there's a lot you can do. And it is a bit of a within oncology a little bit, not so much of a dark art, but just something a lot of people don't get exposed to because there's a lot of centers that don't provide it as a service. Uh, A lot of that is tied to the gynecology sort of surgical subspecialization, which means that these patients need to be seen and sorted by a a center that can provide that service, and there's not many of them. Um, But also, um, I found the the patients a lot more, um, you know, grateful for the input and also that, you know, you actually can make a true difference to someone's survival, but also their symptoms. Um, I'm not a clinician scientist. I'm a true clinician. Um, I did work in a lab. I have done a fair bit of um, lab work in my life, but um, I think, you know, one of the key things to learn in in your life is see where your skill set takes you and also what gives you more um, professional satisfaction. And for me, that's really very much in the clinic. And I just find that, you know, other cancers, there's a lot of attention to, there's a lot of media attention, but a lot of awareness, support available, breast cancer, for example, but even lung cancer now and um, prostate. But, you know, gynecological cancers are really not spoken about um, in that tone. They are rarer. Um, But, you know, you can actually do a lot of good to patients by being able to provide treatment closer to home for them rather than tie them to bigger centres where they, they sort of have their surgery. You mentioned Vish uh, working regionally and and rurally, and and you've done quite a bit of that both as a trainee and as a as a full fledged specialist. Do you have any vivid, I guess, memories of the specific challenges of working in regional and rural areas, having experienced both metro and and regional medicine? Yeah, look, um, I think. Um... Working regionally has its challenges in the sense that there's less of you. You do have to be across a lot more cancers. So from a professional standpoint, you know, it's sort of getting comfortable making decisions in areas where you might not have the same expertise as one of your colleagues in metropolitan Melbourne. I didn't find that to be that big a challenge because, they, you know, one of the key things to anyone who chooses to work regionally is to have a good address book of people you can call for advice and help when you know, you're faced with specific cancers where you're not sure. It's very difficult and I think it's really becoming harder and harder to be across everything um, in the right level of detail, but not just therapies, but also opportunities for trials, opportunities for testing, molecular testing, availabilities and capacity. All these um, things get harder the further away you are from a a metropolitan centre and also sub-specialisation awareness. So, you know, immunotherapy and toxicities how you manage that when, you know, you don't have a very well-developed gastroenterology service or respiratory service and sort of taking on a lot more responsibility by yourself. Um, 
it is challenging, but I think it's important for people to understand help is available if you just know who to call. And so having a list of people you call and contact when something goes wrong is always um, important. And, you know, um, and I suppose sort of building on good practices that you've seen elsewhere. So if you're setting up somewhere where there's probably not as much service, but, you know, getting your MDMs to a robust standard pathology services, None of us can function independently. We're fairly useless as a specialist on our own. Like you need nurses to deliver the treatment. You need a big sort of multidisciplinary team around you to look after the patient. And so if that's not accessible, there's a way to access it and building that through. On a personal level, um, I'm not born in Australia. I am clearly um, of a different background. Um, I think it is a little bit harder to implant yourself in a sort of regional setting coming from a different cultural standpoint and looking different to everyone. Um, you know, I always use this analogy of me being at Bunnings in Ballarat. I just stood out like a sore thumb and everyone knew who I was. Um, I think almost every one of my patients would come and see my child when I'd walk into Bunnings um, at the time. And it takes time to sort of get comfortable with that. Um, I can't say I've had negative experiences because of the way I look. I think, um, unfortunately, idiots live everywhere. so. It'd be quite similar experience you'd have in Melbourne versus regional. I think people in the region are a lot more grateful for the help that you provide, um, and you do feel sort of more part of a community. Um, and certainly, you know, having looked after a lot of people, even after they die, their relatives, you know, you still bump into them at the supermarket afterwards. It is smaller, um, but it's actually, you know, you do feel that you're part of a nicer community over time. So I do recommend it to a lot of people. I don't think sort of having to do more tumours doesn't necessarily mean it's scary. It just means you need to just know where your limits are and where to ask for help. And you're not expected to know everything. Very wise words. And for our international listeners, Bunnings is like a Costco or a, I think you could call it like a Best Buy or any of those big sort of warehouse type shops. Home Home Depot. Home I Depot. That's the, uh... Is the main one, yeah. Um, Vish, one more question. We always have so many questions and such little time on this show before we jump to gynecological cancers is for someone who, you know, lots of people in medicine move, um, either they move before university mm. or they move during university or even due to work circumstances and life circumstances. What did you find as the biggest challenge and or reward from going, I guess, from somewhere like Mauritius to, let's say, Australia? Um, look, for, for me personally, moving was always sort of on the cards. So um, when I um, when I certainly went through high school, we didn't have the capacity to do any um, medical training in the country. That's changed since. So it was always a question of moving somewhere in order to do university. Um, we sort of my family really more than me picked Australia more at the time it was more affordable than going elsewhere and it was quality education for less money um, it is challenging moving I think early in your life better so I came here at 18 I think it was fairly sort of smooth transition from my perspective um, I think moving around through training sometimes gets a, it gets harder the older you get and not necessarily because of age but because of the different parts the different phase of your life that you're in so I think being 18 being sort of straight out of home was probably quite straightforward moving somewhere like it was lonely um, but you know you just kind of had to 
tough it out a bit. I remember the first time I called home just to go feeling a bit down. The answer I got back from my parents was, we're paying enough for this education, so suck it up. Um, and um, you sort of find a way to deal with it. Um, as time has gone on, I think moving from Melbourne to regional Victoria was um, uh, it was a big transition. So, you know, because you've made a lot of contacts, friends. I've actually got family, more family in Melbourne. Um, my sister lives in Melbourne. My in-laws live in Melbourne and a few of the extended family as well. And so moving from there to Ballarat was probably a big step. But it was also at a time where my wife was pregnant um, with our first child. Um, it was a huge change, I think, for that. It realistically took us three years to feel like we belonged in Ballarat, just in terms of um, making the community network connections, new friends, new groups. Um, and for anyone out there who sort of is in that phase of their career where they're starting a family, it's a very isolating experience because once you've got a child, your world revolves around your child and then you still have to do your work. So there's very limited time to actually socialise with other people other than having socialising with other first-time parents who are just as stressed and sleepless as you are. Um, so I think that's probably a bit harder. So, But the key point being, you know, I think in this day and age, you have to be flexible with your oncology career. Um, your dream job that you think you'll get, it might not be there by the time you're done. You'll find that there's always work to be done. Um, and I'm living proof that there's flexibility no matter which time of your career you're in. So I certainly sort of, you know, I didn't set out going to regional thinking I would come back to Metro, but the right job came along and I came back. Um, moving back from regional to Metro is probably the biggest thing we have to do because then it's two children to move. Um, that was a lot more challenging the second time. I think, though, once you're sort of settled in your family life, moving is much, much harder. To paraphrase Harrison Ford, it's not the years, it's the mileage. Vish, I'm sure we could talk about the pros and cons of regional, your experiences, your vast experience for hours and hours and in. But um, in the interest of time, I would like to start picking your brains about Garniong. And I'd like to seize on something that you mentioned earlier in the episode, which is the amount of good that you can do for patients with um, gynecological malignancies, because Garniong has its own set of challenges. You know, there's the gyne-onc problems, there's horrible ascites, there's the incidence of malignant bowel obstructions for younger patients, there's fertility issues. Could you speak to some of your experience in terms of the particular challenges that managing patients with early or more likely advanced gyne cancers presents? Yeah, look, um, that's a very valid point. So unfortunately, gynecological malignancy, so you separate into you know, your endometrials and um, ovarian versus, I suppose, more the squamous cell types of vulva, um, vagina and um, cervix. And the patterns of disease and spread are a bit different and the challenges are a bit different. So, you know, you move from your sort of endometrial and um, ovarian tend to spread peritoneally. So you tend to get more peritoneal disease. And the majority of women you'll find, you will look after will be in that position. So they're incurable from the start. Um, but the survival curve is very different depending on how they respond to treatment, depending on how they also, you know, what type of surgery they get, if they get surgery. Some of the complications you'll find, you know, recurrent ascites, um, it's probably one of the more difficult ones as it gets more loculated as time goes on. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of become a bit less of a challenge over time, especially now because we use a fair bit of um, bevacizumab to try and reduce ascites. 
Bevacizumab recently came off patent, so it's now available and there's data to use it beyond the platinum resist, well, beyond the platinum non-debulk patients that we had before. So previously it was only for suboptimally debulk patients or patients who wouldn't get surgery and you could only use it for one year. But now that it's unrestricted, you can actually combine it with your later line chemotherapy. And so that's become a bit less of an issue. Malignant bowel obstructions, that's probably one of the, I call that one of the harder way to die, one of the hardest ways to die because it's it's really terrible because, you know, and you can see the patients who will have this, it will just start, they'll get the one, you'll give them steroids, they get better, they go home and then, you know, next week they're there, the week out. And each time that interval changes. Um, and um, sometimes they're still quite chemosensitive, so you try and get some chemotherapy in to try and prevent or try and prevent this from happening again and again. Um, it is one of the most difficult things to look after in real life in terms of uh, clinical management. I think once you get someone, I usually tell my patients this: once they get a problem with bowel obstruction, this is the start, um, and it will happen again. It's a question of time. We can use different tricks and techniques to to delay. But this will become the norm and you will get to a point where you know, the steroids won't work um, and then this is it. And, you know, it's, um, there's, there's not been a lot of um, clever tricks or things that work. There's been thoughts in the past, you know, if you've got a point obstruction, could you do a diverting stoma? The reality is even the ones who get that, it's just delaying it a little bit further. It's just going to block somewhere further up the chain at some point. Um, and, you know, you need to be very kind to your surgical colleagues about that. So sometimes you get these patients coming back and there's a point of, of transition on the scan and you keep asking your surgical colleagues, why don't you do a stoma? And they'll keep pushing you back. There's a good reason for that. What you see on a scan with um, ovarian cancer or with endometrial, what you will see in the omentum or in the peritoneal space, think of it as the tip of an iceberg. So what you're seeing on the scan is so much worse when you actually open up. It's going to be a carpet of malignancy. It's going to be grains of sand everywhere stuck through. You're going to cut into it. Normally, if you're trying to enter the abdomen, you want a bit of space between your omentum and your bowel so you're not perforating as you go through. It's stuck on the surface. So cutting through, high chance you actually perforate them. High chance you can't dissect and make a stoma. Um, and then also the problem is that if you get cancer in the base of that wound, it doesn't close over. So you end up with a completely fistulized surface. Um, situation as well. So surgeons are quite reasonably cautious about entering abdomens that are, have significant or mental disease. Um, you know, and that's the, I suppose, the complications you get from the sort of variant endometrial. When you're looking at the, the sort of more squam locally advanced squamous cell cancers of the lower um, genital tract, it's more this locally invasive mass that just keeps growing despite everything you do. So think anatomically, you know, you've got vagina, cervix, vulva, but as, it, as the mass of cancer advances, it pushes front and back. So front is bladder, back is bowel, and it's just going to become like this football that just grows. And very often, you know, the, the worst way to describe it to patients sometimes is like, you know, it's like them just getting, it's the same pains they would have had if they ever had pregnancy. It's just there's no reward at the end of it and the pain just escalates and your body can't adjust. So the natural response to pregnancy is ligaments loosen and body adjusts to a growing fetus. That doesn't happen with malignancy. So it just replaces and damages everything. So you get this horrendous sort of pain that's very hard to look after with worsening fistulization um, as well. Um, that's much, much harder. You know, in the past we talked about exenterations or even diverting 
stoma and um, ileal conduit. Um, even that's not, you know, if you do that, if anything, you tend to make things worse rather than better because the mass keeps advancing and you just get worsening pain and lymphedema throughout. I think as, as a summary of what we just discussed, I think it's that doing surgery on these patients should be done cautiously and potentially in select individuals given the risks and potential complications. Um, we're not a surgical oncology podcast, so I'm not going to go into more detail about sort of which which are, which individual you might choose. But with bevacizumab and especially earlier in my training, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of kind of education and I guess a discussion regarding toxicity and management. Um, from your experience, what would be sort of the things you would look out for, given that bevacizumab is now off label and it's probably going to be used more and more and more um, with your patients? Um, look, I think that the challenges with Bev is realistically clots is a problem, and so the bigger doses you use, the the more uh, the chance of it you will get. Some of your patients who actually tend to clot no matter what, and um, the Bev does raise the risk of that. Blood pressure, I haven't found that to be much of a challenge. I haven't actually had too many problems with renal, you know, with proteinuria um, in the gynae populations that we treat. Um, you know, the risk of perforation, I think, is um, you know, we do talk about it, but I can't say I've ever seen it for gynae tract malignancy. Um, I think overall it's actually been quite safe to use and the benefits far outweigh the risks from my perspective. And just also to seize on something that you mentioned, Fish, uh, both regarding bevacizumab and uh, the conundrum of peritoneal disease, there's various approaches that are used by some sort of hyper-specialist centres, things like uh, HIPEC or intra-abdominal bevacizumab. Have you ever seen those used to any great effect? I know they're very controversial. Well, no. So I, I haven't um, seen many cases. We've probably, in my whole time, I've probably seen one or two who've had sort of intraperitoneal chemotherapy. I think it's very select cases. It's very special. It's very much dependent on surgical input. Um, I don't think most of the um, gynec surgeons in this state would do it um, or would sign on to it outside of a trial uh, situation. Um, you know, when you look at the data around these, and I looked at it a while ago, you know, it looks really good um, from like, you know, disease-free interval and um, R0 surgical resections and survival. But, you know, when you look at the, the overall numbers these trials are sort of reporting on, it's very small numbers. So they are very, very selective about what type of patient they're putting on. So I'm not going to say it doesn't apply to everyone, but I don't think it applies to the bulk of patients. And, you know, there's there's emerging sort of evidence now, you know, we talk about um, when do you do debulking? Do you do it at the start or, you know, post some new adjuvant? And, um, you know, ultimately, if it's resectable at the start, they go to surgery. If it's not, they have chemo first and then an interval debulking. But there's actually recent data suggesting potentially that that second approach does not lead to an overall survival advantage, which is kind of going against what traditionally we've always thought the role of surgery to be. Um, so there is a point of us where we so naturally we tend to think, well, if you can resect and you get an R0 resection, they will live longer. Um, but I think as we're learning a bit more about subtypes of cancer, I don't think it's as mappable across the entire gynae spectrum, especially when we're talking of ovarian peritoneal, uh, primary peritoneal disease or uh, fallopian tube. 
I don't think it's mappable to the entire cohort. And I think as we'll learn a bit more about um, subtypes and biomarkers, you might end up finding that some don't benefit from the surgery at all. Precision oncology is coming to all of the centers and all of the subspecialties that deal with cancer. One of the big points in gynecological cancers is the use of platinum and platinum-resistant and refractory disease. What's your process for identifying? It's like you've had treatment, you know, you've, you've either recurred or you're not responding or you've relapsed. Do you have sort of a guidebook on when you sort of look for the next line of therapy? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of planning a bit early. So like, you know, obviously we're talking about high-grade serous ovarian tubal or peritoneal disease. Um, so I think you're going to, you know, it's, it's amazing how many of these discussions we see through as a, you know, complex meetings talking about all these patients and the, the end answer is always carbotaxel. So that's become the, you know, it, it's a bit of a running gag that, you know, we talk a lot about biomarkers, subtypes, and, and it's still the platinum, the, the wall of it, basically trying to see who responds, who doesn't. So in you know, the high-grade serious cancers of, um, you know, ovarian tubal and proprioteneal, the, the response to platinum really determines survival. So as long as they're sensitive, you could re-challenge. Um, the way I would look at it quite simply is you're going to give it to everyone. Once they're, they're past it, it's a, from the last dose of platinum they've received, when do they actually relapse? So if it's over six months, they're still sensitive. Um, if it's under six months, they're clearly resistant. And if they're sort of just around that six-month mark, you just, you know, you'll take a chance, but you're not too sure is the short interval of it. Um, there's um, testing sort of um, precision oncology part of it is about to change again. So there's now, so at the moment, we're only sort of MBS refunded for BRCA1 and 2 testing, and that's both germline and somatic. So, um, you know, if you do the somatic testing on tumour, you do need to sort of get that to be able to get BRCA. And that's because there's funding, there's funded medications with um, olaparib as a PARP inhibitor for the BRCA mutant population. But at the moment, we also know that there's probably about 30% of these patients that carry a HRD, so homologous recombination deficient um, component that could also benefit from a PARP inhibitor, and they're missing out at the moment. So there is in um, Victoria now, well, in Australia now, an access program to get proper HRD testing um, done, um, which is funded through the company that actually um, owns Olaparib. And that program is going to run instead of the, the BRCA testing. So instead of doing BRCA tests, we're now going to do a panel test for HRD. And if your patient has HRD, they then would qualify for maintenance Olaparib after um, their platinum doublet. But that would be first line and in combination with bevacizumab, which was basically part of the landmark trial. Um, but down the track, PBS will probably also approve um, niraparib in the same setting, but without the BEV. Um, so this is what's coming now to us. Um, it's a the, the sort of testing that we're going to do will be sort of testing for known HRD mutations. It's different to the trials. So in the trials, they use the scoring system through the Myriad My Choice panel, which is basically looking at scoring up these um, mutations to add up to whether or not they benefit from um, PARP inhibitors or not. Um, so realistically, you need that as early as possible. The problem is how much tissue you need to be able to get those tests done is quite a lot. 
Um, so to get somatic HRD panel, you need at least three good 16 gauge core needle equivalent of tissue. So if someone hasn't had surgery, you know, getting a simple sort of acidic fluid tap to get your diagnosis might not be enough to actually do the full panel testing. And sort of it also will push us towards asking, even if you can't reset someone, sometimes asking the guidelines whether they'd go in just to get tissue so we could get proper panel testing. Um, because you can't really predict who's going to be platinum resistance sensitive, um, I think the best practice is to try and get your tissue answered straight up. And even if it takes time to get the results, you know that if you've started your chemo, that will take three and a bit months anyway. So by the time your chemo is done, realistically, you're pretty close to getting the results. And then you can go on to your maintenance path if they qualify, otherwise just surveillance. Vish, it's almost like you've got these notes in advance because that was exactly going to be our next question about um, the the intricacies of, of HRD and its part alongside BRCA. I guess the other biomarker, quote unquote, that has gotten a bit of attention, particularly recently in the not necessarily the ovarian or primary peritoneal space, but more the endometrial space, is uh, deficiency in MMR and the use of immunotherapy. We had uh, Ruby and the NRG trial of Pembro, so um, Dostalumab and Pembro basically on actually on the same day in the same edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. How do you think that immunotherapy, and you can speak as broadly in the gynae space as you want, but um, using endometrial cancer as a sort of a jumping off point. How do you think immunotherapy will start to affect practice in gynaeonc as well? Um, so, yeah, I think um, with endometrial specifically, I think the DMMR population, the, the data looks very much on par with what you'd expect it based on DMMR, um, you know, colorectal and other cancers as well and their response rates. Um, so interestingly, um, you know, there's a recently been PBS approval for combination of pembrolizumab and lenvatinib for um, relapsed endometrial cancer post-platinum. Um, so the data set was in PMMR um, in the trial, but interestingly on the PBSC, it doesn't actually say that. So you can technically access it for all endometrials in the second line now, um, and then you sort of go, well, if you've got DMMR, what is the extra benefit of the lenvatinib? But that's the sort of treatment approval that we've got at this point. Um, I think, you know, the, um, the Stalimab specifically, I think they're trying to make a really good case to try and get registration in the DMMR endometrial space first line. Um, I think biologically, that's a different group altogether. Um, and, you know, it could be nice to see if you could actually even replace chemotherapy altogether just with IO for certain patients. Um, I think there's a few sort of um, good driver uh, predictors of treatment and DMMR is certainly one of them um, with regards to endometrial. Then the question comes about, you know, um, is that the be all and end all? I know there's some of my colleagues also checking, well, most of us actually checking for HER2 as well in the endometrial space. And um, I've certainly looked after a few patients who've ended up self-funding um, trastuzumab in that setting as well. Um, so I think immunotherapy will sort of have a big role to play in the endometrial space, whether it's combination of everything with the PMMR or the DMMR's sort of monotherapy. Um, unfortunately, the trials in ovarian has not been as successful, even in combination. Um, I think in the lower gynae tract, though, there's potential. So there's been data with cervical, certainly, um, with combination 
um, chemoimmunotherapy. So I think it's also got a role to play in that space um, and probably a bigger role because if you if you sort of map what um, immunotherapy has done in sort of squames in other areas as potential um, benefit that's there, the challenges in those areas though is that these are rare cancers. It's harder to get a good trial and it takes time to read out. So it's still going to take a few years for us to get access, I suspect. Vish, with the DMMR or other such biomarkers, what do you see as the main utility of tumour markers? And the second part of my question, I always see sort of DMMR or these markers a little bit coarse. You know, we know there's going to be a certain group of these patients who will respond and there's always going to be some that will respond whether they're proficient or deficient. I think the first part of my question is using tumour markers as a predictor of response. And the second question being, are there any sort of future research or areas that you're aware of that might help us navigate one of the challenges that's selecting patients for use of these treatments? So I suppose tumour markers, we look at, um, it's always nice to look at a number. So if you think, but the thing is, if you've got a tumour marker, so we're talking typically going to be CA125, although some patients it might be the CA199 or the CA that's up. If you've got a marker that you can actually watch and is actually consistent, sort of mapping what the cancer is doing, it's quite sort of tempting to keep looking at that and making treatment decisions based on it. Um, there's a couple of caveats to that. So I think um, our surgical colleagues use that a lot more in someone who's unresectable at the start for ovarian cancer, for example, and looking at the sort of imaging response biochemical response to make a decision about interval debulking. Um, and I think that's a different setting. I think when we're sort of making treatment decisions, you always need to remember that, you know, it's not 100% science. So even if the tumour marker was responding, and certainly most of us will tell you we've got patients where the markers are looking great, um, you've had them finishing their chemo, and then you do a scan, it's actually looking worse. So cancers de-differentiate sometimes and stop secreting CA125 as well. So you generally need, I usually tell my patients it's two of three. So we kind of need to look at two out of three things to agree on what's happening. So you've got markers, imaging, and symptoms. And so if two out of three are in agreement, we tend to be happy with that. But if um, you know one's out of sync with the rest, and you've got patients sometimes where um, how I make decisions. So... A concrete example, let's say, for example, you've had a patient who had their debulking, had their six cycles of chemo. They're not, uh, well, actually, we don't even know what their HRD status is because this is a while ago and we didn't have testing. And we're basically just observing them. So we're doing CA125 just to sort of monitor and make sure that we don't need to do imaging. I don't tend to do routine imaging. I, if their markers were up before, I tend to track the marker. And once it starts to change is when I tend to initiate imaging. Um, and... Um, so you sort of check, you know, CA125 sitting at 15, then 17, and then next visit, which is about, you know, six months later, right on that edge, it's now 200. And their baseline was about 9,000. Um, and so at that point, you know, you do a scan and the scan doesn't show much and the patient feels well. Do you change treatment then? Um, and my default is I don't treat a number, I treat a patient. So the reality of, of it is... Their cancer is incurable from the get-go. So starting treatment early if they're asymptomatic with nothing that's changing on scan is not really going to change the end game. So you might as well wait. And, you know, a lot of people will tell you that have patients where they waited and the marker keeps going up but there's no detectable disease. And so 
until there's symptoms or change on scans, and then you sort of can initiate another line of treatment. And then it gets a bit harder, but do you call that patient platinum sensitive or not? And so biochemically, they're progressing beforehand, but radiologically not. So, you know, you sometimes try it and you might find that they're not actually that responsive to platinum. Um, so that part of that. And your second second part of your question, sorry, Josh, I've forgotten. That's okay. It was a bit of a, a bit of a winded one. The second part is looking at other biomarkers or markers that we could use to, I guess, predict response, things like DMMR or PMMR or tumor mutational burden or things such as that that might be emerging in the field of the gynecological world. Yeah, look, I think there's, there's actually quite, there's a volume, there's actual labs all devoted to cancer biomarkers in the ovarian cancer space, but I don't think there's anything that's really made it into clinical practice. And, you know, it is still very much, it's interesting that someone who secretes CO125, that's still a very good predictor of where we're going. And those that don't tend to fall back on imaging. Um, there's not really a, a clear-cut way. Um, and I was recently at a sort of um, meeting around um, using PATH inhibitors, and even the, the guys who've sort of pioneered the way for this sort of use the, the sort of disease-free interval on platinum as their default to determine if they can't do testing whether someone might benefit from a PATH inhibitor or not. So a lot of it is still, unfortunately, clinical. And Vish, we're sort of at the stage now where immunotherapy... I'm going to sound like a, a, for want of a better word, a millennial here, but um, immunotherapy is immunotherapy is sort of becoming yesterday's news and the new hot thing is uh, antibody drug conjugates in many cases and various targeted therapies. As someone who very much has his ear to the ground and uh, he gets a lot of uh, back ch- backroom chatter about potential things that are coming, do you have any insights as to what might be the next big thing even just sort of in general terms for gynae cancer, is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to that's around the corner? Um, I think one of the, um, I think we separate that again into the different components. I think if you're looking at um, the ovarian sort of high-grade serious populations, um, clear-cut sort of what happens post-PARP is now the biggest challenge. So, um, and um, potential trials coming up with drug antibody conjugates kind of targeting that particular pathway and pathways of resistance. I've heard of a couple. It's still very early and we're still not quite sure. It's taken a very long time to get any kind of innovation from a therapeutic perspective in this space. But I think now that we know a lot more, we'll probably find a bit more um, targets. The platinum-resistant group is also an area with uh, a lot of interest at the moment. So there's potential with sort of pathways of resistance that have been discovered and there's been a couple of positive trials they haven't read out just yet but anecdotally there's been a couple of patients who've been on those trials who've done really well on second line therapy instead of chemo um so that's coming up soon and i think it's an old target i just can't remember the name of it um but you know there will be a bit more probably i think the next um barrier to come down will be the platinum resistant group um and the ones with no mutations because I think PARP is changing the game with regards to HRDs completely. And so there's sort of two arms in that area of what happens post-PARP in the HRD population. And the other component is the platinum resistant, which is gaining a lot more attention about pathways of resistance and how to overcome it. Um, I think, you know, we use chemotherapy. I can think of God knows how many lines of chemo I can throw in this space, but the, the sort of it's the rule of um, diminished return 
you know, every time you give something, it doesn't work as well. Um, I think one of the challenges is that, you know, we, we sort of don't really biopsy on progression in gynae cancers, whereas we do in other cancers. So I think we need to change our mindset as well over time um, around that and potentially rebiopsying on progression to determine the next course. Um, in the sort of, um, I think immunotherapy has been more exciting in the endometrial space, in, in the sort of squamous cell space in the lower tract. Um, not many things are coming. I think um, immunotherapy, we're sort of waiting more on what happens with immunotherapy, to be honest. I think we have two things I can agree on as we wrap up. The first being that Michael is definitely a millennial. Uh, the second <laughs> second part is that there's, there's a lot of work that still needs to go into the ovarian and the gynecological space, but hopefully as new drugs are tried and tested, we'll have further options in that post-PARP world. If, Vish, if you had the ability to talk to your younger self, uh, when you started this journey, um, whether that be med school or being a specialist trainee or even a, a junior consultant, what pearls of wisdom would you have for a trainee or what sort of things have you learned over the years that would be like, I wish I knew that, you know, 10 years ago? Um, look, there's, there's many things that you could probably think of that you could improve on, but I think it's important to appreciate the journey that you're on and um, don't take things for granted. Learn off your patients. Um, you know, life is precious. A lot of our patients will not survive beyond, you know, a short amount of time in the advanced setting. Um, and I think, you know, remember something that, you know, we all want to have great careers and contribute and help, but don't do that at the expense of your own life. Um, speaking from someone who's had an episode of career burnout once, um, I think if I had to talk to my younger self, it would be, you know, don't overstretch yourself. Learn to say no sometimes. Um, don't always agree to do things and push beyond what you can do and listen to yourself. Um, I would also, you know, my journey's been sort of not ad hoc, but it's kind of taken me in different places and I wouldn't change that part of it. I think that's actually helped me gain experience and you can learn something of everything that you do, even, you know, even if you're working in a, you know, in a setup where you're not that happy, there's something you need to learn from that is how not to do it um, and how you would do it when you have that opportunity to change something yourself. I think the, the biggest thing for me is, you know, and something I tell myself all the time is learn off the patient in front of you. Like, don't miss opportunities in your life. So if there's... Um, you know, when you look back on what matters, your career will matter, but probably what matters which is family. So what I've learned is to make that more of a priority in my life. A brilliant note on which to end. Vish, thank you so much for spending some very quality time with us, each each sentence dripping with dense wisdom and very practical uh, advice for anyone listening with an interest in gynecancer. So thank you so much for coming on. No worries. Thank you for having me. So join us next time on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, where we will have a very belated examination on triple negative breast cancer in the advanced setting. We've looked at the uh, exciting space of neoadjuvant treatment with immunotherapy coming to the fore, even for us millennials, as I've been uh, outed. Uh, but uh, we will be looking at the frequently much more challenging space of metastatic triple negative breast cancer. So we'll see you next week. See you then. 
Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. Thank you.